Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity, and they asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy the show, everybody. Hey, everybody, it's me again. This is Eric Arnaud with a special and different episode of Your Stories while we wait for Chris and Shelby's next live show, which takes place on Sunday, March 17th, by the way. Uh, friend of the Nerdalogs, Bill Nielsen, the gentleman behind the video game show Too Many Bits, has been working on a new podcast with me for the last year or so, and the first episode of it dropped today. Uh, since it uses some Your Stories audio as part of the storytelling, I thought it would be appropriate to cross-post the show into our feed, at least for this first one. Uh, I think you guys will really like it. The show is called A Year in 20 life and it's about bill's return to professional level magic the gathering competition after almost a decade away it's something he talked about in a couple of his prior your stories appearances and i feel like it's a pretty fascinating thing merging a traditional kind of sports glory narrative with a very nerdy pursuit uh this first episode talks about bill's earliest tournament days back around 2010 and he set it up so that you don't need to know anything about magic to listen it's just a cool story about a guy trying to succeed doing something he loves and the ebbs and flows that inevitably come with that um so you can listen to the show on the regular over in the so many bits feed on facebook or twitter which i will post links to on our podcast posting uh we'll also be posting them on nerdalogs.com I hope you enjoy this first episode, edited by yours truly. It was a lot of fun to make, and I really like it. Bye! Play the game. See the world. That's the tagline used to pitch Magic the Gathering's Pro Tour. Reserved for only the best of the best players, thousands compete in qualifier tournaments all across the world in order to play in events that take place in exotic locations like Paris or Geneva. The end goal is the chance to win $25,000 in one of these tournaments. But the backup plan is to reach the gravy train, placing well enough in each Pro Tour event to remain qualified for the next one. Magic the Gathering, or Magic as I'll refer to it from here on out, is a game where you play as a wizard, summoning creatures and casting spells to achieve victory. All actions are represented as paper cards spread across five colors, with the mixing and matching of these colors leading to countless permutations of strategies. Competitive events vary between constructed and limited rules. In constructed, you are required to build a deck of cards in advance, While unlimited, you are provided sealed, randomized packs of cards with which to build a deck on the spot. It's a fun game, good for socializing, and sometimes needlessly complex. Only in Magic will you find a distinction from when something comes into play versus as something comes into play. And this is after 25 years of sanding down the edges on the rulebook. Some cards are so complex that they are barely readable because the font is so small, and others have caused years-long confusion among even professional players in how they work. It wasn't long after I started playing Magic that I began to dream of becoming one of those professional players. I hadn't been any good at typical sports. Ice hockey stopped being fun once checking was allowed, and I was only technically on varsity tennis because there was no JV tennis. I began doing well and even winning local tournaments within a year of learning the rules, which led me to believe I could maintain that trajectory of improvement over the next 40 to 50 years until I retired. As unrealistic as that goal was, I did fare pretty well. From 2004 to 2011, I managed to qualify for the Pro Tour four times, which is far, far better than average. And every time I qualified, I learned something new I was able to apply to my next attempt. So for episode one of A Year and Twenty Life, let me share those lessons without the outrageous investment of time and money I made. I was completely overwhelmed after winning my first qualifier for the Pro Tour in July 2004. Not only was the Pro Tour event happening in Columbus, Ohio, which was pretty close to my hometown of Buffalo, New York, 
but I hoped my winning deck list would be featured on the official Magic website. Sure enough, it was immortalized along with this quote to celebrate my victory. Finally, there was a 59-person PTQ on Sunday, which saw another deck archetype join the top 8 party. It should be noted that although John Stern did not win the tournament, they did not actually play the finals. Stern dropped confident that his rating spike would suffice to cue him for either Worlds or Columbus. The thing is, though, there are a lot of boring elements to attending tournaments. At 19 years old, I'd never planned a trip or understood how to do it. I never booked a hotel room, rented a car, I didn't own one, or made room-sharing plans to save costs. Because these things were difficult to do, I ignored them, even as I continued to prepare for the event. A few friends mentioned they would ride down with me, but backed out as we got closer to the event, somewhat justifiably. The day before the Pro Tour arrived, and I had no plans in place. In 2019, I think I can make something work. In 2004, I had to admit with a hole in my chest, I was simply not going. So lesson number one, plan things well in advance. That and procrastination is insidious and will sabotage you if you don't take care of yourself. By the time I qualified again in 2006, the Pro Tour organizers had already solved most of my problems for me. First, my qualification included a free flight to Charleston, South Carolina, where it would be taking place, booked by game manufacturer Wizards of the Coast on my behalf. Second, it was a three-player team event, meaning I already had two roommates slash friends to stay with me. Better yet, some other friends of mine managed to qualify, so this was shaping up to be a blast. I've actually talked about how this went previously on the storytelling podcast, Your Stories, where the key moments of the weekend were recapped. Finally, I won a big tournament uh, in Mississauga, Ontario, a, what's called a Pro Tour Qualifier. And in addition to the regular prize you would win for this tournament, which is more magic cards, <laughs> you also get a entry into a Pro Tour tournament, this one being held in Charleston, South Carolina, and airfare uh, to and from. And so I was like, yes, this is me. This is going to be the next step on my journey to being a pro Magic player. And so, of course, I kept practicing, but I also was like, I need to prepare and how I'm going to look. <laughs> and so when I was, after I'd gotten done practicing, getting ready, when I was packing, I decided that I was going to wear this on the first day of the tournament. I was going to wear a T-shirt with a graphic on it, and a pair of gym shorts to show not as a casual, ironic thing like, I don't care how I look. I wanted to genuinely impress people by wearing a graphic t-shirt and gym shorts. (laughs) And I mean, clearly this presents a ton of logistical problems. I mean, you can imagine, if you have your deck in one pocket and your cell phone in the other, where do you put your wallet? Well, in your backpack, of course. (laughs) I had every angle figured out, guys. So I went into the event. Uh, There's a little preliminary event the night before where you can meet people. They register you. And I saw everyone around, walking around, getting the last cards for their deck or trading. And I thought, yeah, this is the start of my new life. This is going to be what I'm going to be doing now for the next five, ten years. And the next day, I found out that I was not going to be doing this for the next five or ten years. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people who were very talented or very much more prepared than me or just much more experienced than me, and I was drummed out in a really quick fashion. Uh, 
That wasn't the bad part, though. Uh, the bad part was the next day. Uh, there are there are side events that occur during the pro tour if you get kicked out early, so you can keep playing. <laughs> and for one of them, I won, and so I went to the front table to report my result. But I left my backpack at the table, and when I went back, it had wandered away. And at a lot of these tournaments, everyone has a backpack. Everyone has cards. There's no way to identify your cards or your backpack. And after a bunch of walking around the event hall and creepily peering into the backseat of people's cars in the parking lot, I determined that all my cards and my wallet were gone. Magic players are bastards. (laughs) I'm a magic player. Don't say that. Shut your mouth. Uh, So the next 36 hours weren't that great. Uh, I had to call my credit card company to cancel my card, call the airline to see if I could still fly because now I no longer had a valid ID. I had my boarding pass, but I had no driver's license, anything. And I had to tell my friend who had let... I let him keep his cards in my bag. I had to tell him all his cards were gone, too. (laughs) He forgave me. He forgave me. He understood. Uh, But really, at the end of the weekend, I felt like I, without any cards, without any, in my mind, talent, that I lost everything. I wasn't a magic player. I had no identity. And what I learned in the aftermath of that was that magic wasn't my identity. There is not one thing that can define you as a person. I kept playing magic, and I kept enjoying it, and I've played it pretty much now up until the present day. And I even won some more Pro Tour qualifiers. It didn't have to be the only thing I did in my life. And I found that out because I started doing improv comedy in my hometown of Buffalo, New York. And that became my next passion. But that also doesn't define me. I'm made up of a multitude of different things. And hopefully, you will not define me from my horrible, horrible fashion choices. (laughs) Thank you very much. So lesson number two. Be aware of your belongings at all times. When you sit down at the table... Loop the strap from your bag around your leg, not the chair leg. If it's around your leg, you'll never miss someone messing with your stuff. My next qualification would be a new challenge, as it would be my first trip outside North America. In 2007, I was headed to Geneva, Switzerland. Blessed with past experience, though, and the assistance of an employee at Wizards of the Coast, I again had help with booking a flight. Better yet, I managed to book a hotel for myself, find a roommate to defray costs, and even figure out a public transportation route after realizing I would be staying far away from the event site. My mistake this time was something where I had no previous experience. See if you can spot the difference. Ohio. South Carolina. Switzerland. While I didn't have much incentive to be a tourist at my first two pro tours, I had potentially a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to visit Geneva. Instead of taking a ski trip or taking in the beautiful architecture, other than what I saw going to and from my hotel, I spent all my time playing Magic or eating McDonald's. I played the game as the slogan instructed, but hadn't seen the world. Which brings me to lesson three. When traveling, make sure to enjoy the local culture, which is a memory that will stick with you far longer than any wizard duels. My last Pro Tour invitation was earned in 2011 
and I'd be again heading to Europe as the tournament was happening in Paris, France. More than any event I'd attended before, I put everything I had into my preparation. I spent two months practicing, playing every night after work using the online version of Magic to test against people around the world. I read every piece of strategy I could find to make sure I knew every new strategic innovation. When a new set of cards came out and wasn't available yet for online play, I invited friends over to practice with paper cards. At this point, travel plans were the least of my concerns. When I arrived in Paris the night before the tournament, I felt I had done everything I could manage to get ready. That wasn't, however, a drop in the bucket compared to what the pro teams had accomplished. Players who were regularly qualified for the pro tour, the gravy trainers I mentioned up top, would team up to practice and share testing results. They'd spent just as much time preparing as me, but in a way that yielded them way more insight. When play began the next day, I saw ideas I'd never even considered put to extremely effective use against me. To be honest, though, I don't remember much about the games themselves from Paris. Instead, I remember skating on the Eiffel Tower, touring the Louvre in awe of the paintings and the extremely well-armed guards, having a nice dinner out with people I knew from the internet, buying Marvel Star Wars comics in a small French bookstore. I learned my lesson gracefully. Sometimes, you have to accept you're good at something, but not great, and there are limitations you'll never be able to overcome. On the next episode of A Year in 20 Life, I'll talk about what I did after I stopped playing Pro Magic and why I came back. Okay, no, just, just, just kidding. There was one other lesson I learned in Paris. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring to the stage Mr. Bill Nielsen. <laughs> Welcome to this tale of the Pro Tour titled Hostel Minus the S. <laughs> All names have been changed to protect the innocent. My story is more of a modern horror tale, with a slow build leading to pure financial terror. <laughs> it stars arrogant Americans traveling to a foreign land, where their ignorance to local customs leads them down to a spiral of despair. Minus the hand cam found footage. <laughs> To begin, I won a Pro Tour qualifier from Magic the Gathering. <laughs> that allowed me to go to a Pro Tour in Paris, France. I was delighted, but where was I to stay? Luckily, my friends Barney Gumble told me, Don't worry, we can stay in Ned Flanders' hotel room. He has a free one. And I thought, a free hotel room? How could I beat that price? <laughs> From the time we got there, though, things were a little bit off. Small things, barely noticeable, but in hindsight clues that should have served as a warning. This hotel was new, very new. So new our room number was written on our door in pencil. <laughs> Yet mysteriously two days in, the numbers appeared. Then there was the matter of how many people were staying in our hotel room. I think all American hotels know that if you list two guests in your room, you actually have eight. <laughs> but I know this custom now does not travel across the Atlantic. The first morning we were there, a worker asked us at breakfast how many people were staying in our room, to which we replied, two. But they didn't fall for our American wiles. They were watching and waiting. 
The third grim red flag was our room keys. Every six hours, our keys would stop working, requiring us to return to the front desk to get them re-swiped. We thought this was just a new hotel LOL, but soon we were not L. We were not L at all. (laughs) Saturday, 4 p.m. in Chicago, but in Paris, the witching hour. After a long day of magic, we return to the hotel, but find our hotel keys again don't work. This time, when we go to the front desk, we do not get our keys back. We get asked repeatedly whose name our room is under. We say, Ned Flanders! Ned Flanders! But they have no room under that name, adding to the confusion. Now, the desk clerk has called the hotel manager, who comes on the line with, You do not like to pay! If you do not pay now, we call the police! Faced with utter despair and no choices, I pay for the room a cool $750 U.S. currency! The rest of the weekend passes. Ned can't solve the problem, and they are very unhelpful to us now that they have our money. (laughs) As I leave, I scream, Fuck you! to the hotel's exterior. No one notices or cares. (laughs) This is France. (laughs) By the time we get back to the United States, we get our shocking M. Night Shyamalan twist. The room was not Ned's at all. It had been booked on his behalf by a friend, Moe Sislak, using a hotel voucher. (laughs) When the hotel staff saw we had three guests instead of two, they added an extra charge to the bill, which voided the voucher, and they saw we had not paid for the room at all, which is why they insisted we pay immediately and for the full room price. Moe, out of the goodness of his heart, Paid me out of pocket. But to this day, (laughs) late at night, you can still hear poor Mo calling the hotel, begging them to honor his voucher. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right, and we're back. This is Bill again. And this section is going to be called Accumulated Knowledge. So what you've heard up to now is kind of my personal journey through playing Magic. Kind of a more of a travelogue, though, than really getting into the guts of, like, Magic strategy, Magic deck choices, stuff like that. So I figured there should be a section here at the end. It's going to be a little looser where uh, my, my producer here, Eric, is going to be asking me some questions about, like, how these tournaments went down and different strategies and stuff like that. Hi, Bill. Hey, Eric. Thank you so much for helping me out with this. So I have two questions from your introduction, first of all, that I bet even non-Magic players would be interested to hear the answer to. You note that some cards are so complex, Magic players still debate what they mean. Uh, Just a little bit of cool Magic opinion trivia for you. What is the most complicated card you know? The most complicated card I know is Humility. Humility is an enchantment from the set Tempest. It's four mana, two any color, two white, and it says... All creatures lose all abilities and become one-ones. On paper, like, I think holistically that sounds like it's a pretty easy-to-grok uh, text. But the way it works with, like, other card abilities is very hard to understand. Like, for example, there are creatures with the ability Modular. Modular means the creature is a 0-0, zero, zero, but it comes into play with a certain number of plus-one, plus-one counters on it. So when you play a creature with Modular, does it have counters on it or not? 
Does it come in as a zero zero and die? Or does it come in as just a one one and stay in play? I don't know the answers to any of those questions, but uh, you would probably need to call a judge over to like figure out how they would actually interact. And I think there's a way in which Wizards of the Coast has moved away from kind of blanket statements that create horrible interactions as the game has gone on. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, they they try to use more reminder text a lot of the time to clarify how certain interactions should work on the card itself. Like there's a card, Time Stop. All it says is end the turn. And then it has like sentence after sentence after sentence of parenthetical reminder text to explain what does end the turn mean? It's like your mana pool empties. Combat ends. If you were going to draw a card for the turn, but you didn't yet, you don't draw that card. Stuff like that. Excellent. Okay, let's get to the meat. Now, we could talk about all sorts of the decks that you played, uh, that you presented in your narrative. There's two in particular that I want to call out. What was the winning deck list that got you on the Magic website? The Magic website deck was Tooth and Nail. Uh, So Tooth and Nail is this nine-mana sorcery that lets you uh, search your library for two creatures and put them into your hand, and then you can also put them into play if you pay the full nine mana. You can play it for seven to do either half of those abilities. And back in that time, the combos you could do with that were a lot more limited than they are now. There's, like, way more exotic creature combinations you can get these days. But back then, this was in 2004, so you could get Platinum Angel, which says you can't lose the game and your opponents can't win the game, and Lean in a Bonus, which says your artifacts can't be the target of spells or abilities, which Platinum Angel is an artifact creature, which means, in theory you basically have this impregnable defense that can't let you lose the game anymore. You can't hit the angel, and if you happen to have like a removal spell, you have to target the Abunus first. That's pretty good. And then at the end of your story, you talk about going to Paris and encountering a strategy that you hadn't even anticipated. So let's go into that, because I, I remember from talking to you personally, this came actually at a relatively historic time for Magic the Gathering. Yeah, that's right. So uh, just to set it up a little bit, the deck that I was planning to play at the event was called Valakut. And Valakut has this namesake card, Valakut the Mountain Pinnacle, which it's a land. And then if you control at least five other mountains, when you play a mountain, it deals three damage to any target. And so you combo that with land search effects that put lots of lands into play, and you can deal a lot of damage with your Valakut. It was not like the most incredibly powerful strategy but it was a consistent strategy and it didn't seem like it would have a lot of like natural like hate decks or opposition from the upcoming format that is until this other deck called Cawblade emerged and i had not known about this deck beforehand uh the a lot of the cards had already been in print it was just like specifically one card that really tied it all together and that card was called sword of feast and famine So Sword of Feast and Famine is an equipment, which is like uh, something you can give to multiple creatures. You can attach it to a creature, then pay mana to attach it to another creature. Uh, So it gives the creature plus two, plus two, protection from black and protection from green. And whenever the creature deals combat damage to a player, untap all your lands, and the opponent has to discard a card. So that is pretty powerful because you can have five lands in play. You play your sword, and you can equip it for five mana. Then you hit the opponent with that attack, and you get to untap all your lands. You got a free effect, and you got your opponent to discard their card. Now you have all your mana available to play another big thing or to use a counterspell to react to what your opponent is going to do on their turn. So the Valakut deck, 
uh, would have lots of green creatures in it because it had like ramp creatures. It had primeval titan, which is this big nasty six six that gets you lands, but is helpless against sort of feast and famine. On top of that, the Callblade deck had lots of counter spells, which disrupted you, and Wrath of Gods that could kill your uh, mana creatures or your primeval titan and stuff like that. And if I had known in advance, I could have packed some countermeasures. They, people eventually adapted the Valakut deck to do that. They would play Inferno Titan instead of Primeval Titan. Now, Inferno Titan is a red creature, so it gets around sword, and it deals damage to other creatures and to the player whenever it attacks. And you could also play the aforementioned Lightning Bolt. And so Lightning Bolt was a pretty good counter because they would go, they'd play their sword, they'd equip it on the creature, you could respond with the bolt, and that blows up their whole turn. They wasted their whole turn to do nothing. And that gives you an opportunity to counterattack. And this was the deck that you had the joy of being sprung on you when you went to Paris. Yes, yes. So the first round I had, they weren't playing the Clawblade deck against me, but they had sort of Feast and Famine. And I knew the card existed. I, like I'd seen it you know, in spoilers and stuff. I'd played against it in draft. But I'd never seen it in a constructed deck before. But when I saw it, my, the opponent played it turn two. I knew... I was in a lot of trouble because if other people were playing Sword of Feast and Famine, I knew between my main deck and my sideboard, I had no answers to that card. I had no artifact removal. I had no, like, red removal. Everything was, like, green. So I was in a bad spot. Uh, So, yeah, uh, thank you, Eric, for uh, guiding me through this. So if you enjoyed this segment and if you have any questions, uh, for now, email me at somanybitspodcast at gmail.com. That's so many bits, B-I-T-S, podcast at gmail.com. We'll work on getting a, a separate email uh, set up for this podcast. I'd like to extend a big thanks to Eric Garneau for his help brainstorming, recording, and editing this podcast, as well as the Nerdalogs for their support in sharing it. Podcast art was created by Kimmy Chimmy Draws. Check out her artwork on Twitter and Instagram at Kimmy Chimmy Draws. That's K-I-M-I-C-H-I-M-I Draws. Music provided courtesy of DJ Spruik. The Gathering, a full album of Magic the Gathering music by Spruik and Pat Chapin, is available for sale on Star City Games and Channel Fireball, among other places. For contacts, I can be reached at somanybitspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at somanybits. Thanks, and have a great summer.